I think from a kind of taking a step back from a like a macro industry perspective, you have the work number who's really been the only like you know one of the, or one of the few institutional grade uh, solutions in the past. They charge an absolute portion for a service that's pretty darn simple, especially you know when they're getting most of their data from ADP. Uh, and, and you know that that's that old model has really had a, a tremendous amount of stress over the last couple of years for good reason. Welcome to Seeking the Truth, where we explore how successful companies and business leaders use data to make confident decisions. Hosted by Kirill Klokov, CEO and founder of Truve, a one-stop solution for income and employment verification. Okay, Jeremy, thanks for joining Seeking the Truth. Really nice to have you. I'm going to uh, introduce you. Tell me if I messed anything up. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. Uh, so you're partner at Nike today, but you had a long career in credit. So you know everything about how to underwrite uh, and then sell loans. You started your career back in, uh, I guess, back as an analyst at the, the company that uh, is no longer around, which is called Lemon Brothers. Uh, you were then at Deutsche. And then you switched to the startups where I guess you were director of capital markets at Social Finance, SoFi Today, Lending Club. And then right before you became a VC, you were at a firm. Uh, doing everything underwriting and managing the capital markets. Yes, and, and finance. And everything finance. That, yeah, everything that you need me to do. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Tell me a little bit about your career height. Uh, well, so I, I think a, a few things. One is, so you, you actually missed one thing that you, you could gloss over, but like after I spent four years on Wall Street at the beginning of my career, I ended up going to uh, Uganda to work for a microfinance bank. Uh, and most people thought I was crazy, including my parents. But it it actually taught me. It's the reason why I got into fintech because here I was in the middle of Uganda, uh, trying to figure out how to take that business model, expand it throughout East Africa, and you know, to a population that uh, hadn't had traditional financial services, and there were operational efficiencies that allowed for that to happen that weren't actually occurring in the U.S. So when I came back stateside and, you know, right at the time when Lehman Brothers was failing, uh, you know, I, I realized that that the lessons I learned in Uganda in terms of technology uh, were going to come to the U.S. in a big way. And that's why I, I shifted from, you know, the, the Wall Street path and, and not that I enjoyed it that much, uh, but you know, I learned a lot and then came to the, the startup world. I'd say uh, in, in startups... I think every, as every entrepreneur and knows that you have your ups and downs. Uh, and, and so, it, you know, it, it kind of vacillates between, you know, we're going to the moon and we're fucked. Uh, and, you know, everything in between, uh, especially in the early days. So, you know, you, you have to have a, a thick skin for that. But I really enjoyed, um, you know, the, that process especially, you know, at, at SoFi and a firm where we started to hit rapidly scale, uh, figure out the markets and, and see the results from that. That's, that's great. I, I skimmed over the Uganda experience. How did you even end up going to Uganda? So I, I studied economic development in college and, and I had an interest actually in, in going to Latin America. But, uh, you know, what, what happened is I was at Deutsche Bank 
And in their philanthropic arm, they lend to microfinance banks. So I started volunteering for that group. And I said, hey, like, you know, this seems kind of fun. I'm sick of my, you know, Deutsche Bank job. Can you, you know, hook me up with someone in like, you know, Colombia or Peru or, you know, Argentina, Brazil, wherever it would be. And they said, no, don't have anything there. But we do have something in, in Uganda if you want to go there. And I'd never been to Uganda. I honestly could pin, you know, pinpoint on a map. I hadn't seen Last King of Scotland yet, so I didn't know about Idi Amin. But I, I ended up um, meeting the CEO of this microfinance bank who's actually an American guy, and he co-founded it with a Ugandan uh, gentleman. And, and so really liked them and what they were building and just you know, took the shot and, and, and moved to uh, Kampala. That's an awesome story. I like how you switch from uh, banking to Uganda and to fintechs. That's that's pretty incredible story. Well, if you can do business in Uganda, you can do it anywhere in startup land. It's just <laughs> not that hard compared to doing business in East Africa. That's incredible. For people who'll be listening, what's the biggest learning or lesson that you want to share with people who'll be listening? Uh, in terms of career path, you know, I would say whatever job you take. Don't think that you're planning for 20 years in the future. Figure out what skills you want to build over the next two to three years and how that role will help you, uh, you know, build up the, uh, those skills. Uh, and those are the types of jobs you should take, not necessarily what you think you want to do in 20 years because no one knows what they want to do in 20 years. So, so you have to kind of build up step by step uh, and, and find, you know, where you can thrive, uh, you know, in, in whatever organization you join. Great. Okay, I guess uh, we're going to talk about underwriting. So I'll just shoot the questions. Uh, what's missing from the underwriting today? Well, it's, it's interesting. So in, in traditional consumer underwriting, I, I think you, you know, we're at a point where FICO scores, well, FICO scores have never been valid for the broader population. Uh, but now there's broad realization that they're even less effective, especially, I, I think, post-08, it's important to note that credit has been somewhat discouraged. Uh, and so there's been a, a generation that's come into the system who, uh, you know, unlike your parents, uh, decides to, you know, transact on debit cards versus credit cards. And, and so, uh, or delays uh, buying a home or delays buying a car. And, and so there's somewhat like credit invisible in, in our current system. Uh, and, and so, you know, at NICA, uh, we've been very focused on ways to better disseminate credit through better data. Uh, and, and some bureau data is, is very valid and, and useful, uh, but there's also a lot of data about individuals uh, and their behaviors that are outside of bureaus today. Um, so that could be uh, bank account transactional data uh, and, and payroll. So like you go to the sort, you know, all you know, a, a consumer's money comes from work. Right. And so if you can tap into work, uh, you understand a lot about that individual, uh, how long he or she's been working at that job, the progression of income, the volatility of that income. Uh, and that can help assess credit worthiness you know, quite a bit. And I think that's been missing from general credit assessments over the years. OK, so now you have this new sources of data. How does that change the underwriting process if you start from like the very beginning all the way to the end? Kind of, what is how do you should you be looking at this data? What are the common pitfalls? Well, I, I think you know, there's two sides of this. One is how do you optimize your funnel? If you're a lender, 
how do you make sure that you get as many people through as possible? So traditionally, you don't want to put them through like KBA, uh, knowledge-based authentication, because like, you know, five questions about, you know, what was your mother's, you know, maiden name or, you know, what, you know, what you know, color house was next year's and, and where you grew up. Uh, you know, these are very difficult questions that sometimes that the mother's maiden name you should know, but the rest are, are tough. So, you know, I, I think the application flow has to be somewhat streamlined. And so you want to ask the, um, the potential borrower minimal questions and things that they know to get them through the funnel. And, and so that's the emphasis, uh, you know, that you, know, you typically put on. Uh, but if people, for whatever reason, uh, don't qualify or you don't have enough information through that process, then you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the, the consumer's credit profile, you know, by asking for additional data sources. Uh, and I think that's become, you know, worthwhile for consumers to go through uh, and, and all, much more trustworthy. Like, you know, the, the first flat oriented integrations, like no one to put that in their info. Uh, and now I think it's become commonplace. And we're, we're seeing that in, in payroll as well, where, you know, payroll is is much less threatening, I would say, than uh, bank account. Because, it, you know, you think, oh, I give my... Uh, you know, routing and checking number, can someone steal my money? And the answer is no. But in the U.S., there's a stigma against this. With payroll, you know, there's, there's not much someone can do with, uh, you know, username and password. And it brings very useful information saying, hey, like, I actually do make money. You should trust me. And this is the way I prove it. So I, I think it's a very effective tool to not, you know, shake out the funnel too much, but bring more people into conversion. In terms of like the talking about conversion, how did the funnel change since we since the COVID hit in the last couple of years? We've been moving more and more online. It's less offline process. What happened in, in terms of the conversion and how you think you, you should be thinking about the funnel? Well, I, you know, I, there are much fewer paper applications now. And like, you know, you sit in uh, a fintech startup, you're like, why is there paper at all? But like, yeah, the reality was, whether it be in, you know, auto or, you know, mortgage is still a mess, you know, just a, a, a ton of paper. And so you, like, I think it's been a, a great boon for, you know, the fintech industry to say, hey, we've got a solution for this. I know, Bank, you were reluctant to actually use this, but, you know, your customers are ready. No one can go into the branch today. And we've got a, a tools that, you know, that can manage your risk tolerance uh, and, and bring in quality uh, loan applicants. So digital applications also can break down the challenges associated with just uh, people not being available during working hours and such. And, and so it really does widen the, the general population that can apply for, for credit and, and also just streamlines that process overall. So if the process is streamlined, everything is digital, I guess it's also set up for fraudsters, right? Because you don't need to show up. You don't need to present yourself. How do you think about fraud in this digital environment? Uh, so fraud is, I would say, probably the least understood part of uh, consumer credit and in small business credit as well. Uh, you saw rampant fraud in PPP. Uh, and I think it's going to take us you know, years to figure out the full extent of that. On, on the consumer side, I think fraud is probably the most important tool that uh, out there to to actually uh, fine tune your your credit funnel. So at a firm, 
there's multiple ways to actually, you know, it, 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 but you're not just assessing someone for credit. The first thing is, Creel just came to apply for a loan. Is this really Creel? And if it is Creel, then it's like, okay, then we can underwrite uh, Creel as an individual and, and decide whether he's credit worthy. But, you know, if you say, I'm going to assess Creel's credit, uh, and then I, I guess I'll double check and make sure Creel is Creel. There, there's a lot more risk in that process. So fraud should be front and center of any credit process, uh, especially when you're going online, fully digital, fast application, you know, instant delivery. It's the critical component to uh, developing strong credit models. So talking about credit models, so the the it used to be just FICO, right? Let's just run FICO, get the FICO. How do you think about the credit models now? So more inputs, more types of data. How do you even test the model? How do you think about the model that makes sense for your business? I think it's it's a daunting task at first to you know to create a credit model. Uh, you know, lenders have been you know developing their models over years and years. I think. Problem on the uh, the traditional finance side is that's a linear regression model that takes months, if not a year, to update, uh, and that's just not a dynamic way of looking at you know a, a large population. On the fintech side, I think the the modeling techniques have been you know proven to you know work quite effectively, and not that like there are sophisticated banks that are using uh, you know ML models and know how to implement them correctly. So, it, but yeah, you know, I, I think if you take the, the average community bank, they don't have the resources uh, to get uh, a, a data scientist to actually build up for them. Capital One is, you know, pretty darn good at it, but, you know, X bank, like my, my hometown bank probably is not using ML models. On, on the fintech side, I think there's a, a lot of talk about throw FICO out the window. I think that's really overblown because everyone's using bureau files. The difference is, FICO has, you know, it's an inherent biases in it. And if you have the raw data that makes it FICO, you can come up with your own score if you think you can do better. So what most modern lenders are doing are taking data attributes uh, associated with FICO, developing those into signals, uh, and then testing those signals versus, you know, you can backtest them versus, uh, you know, populations that you've proved in the past or, or declined in the past. And, and, and try to see what's what's most effective, uh, but you know it, it's it's taking the, the bureau files, it's taking bank account transaction data, it's taking payroll data, uh, it's it's taking context. Um, so did a, a borrower? My, my favorite thing uh, in the personal loan space is did it come the lead come from Credit Karma? Did it come from direct mail, or did it come from someone googling "I need money now"? And, and, and just based off of that the sourcing of uh, the the applicant, like there's, a, you know, a, a, it's highly predictive that the person who's Googling, I need money now is going to be a worse borrower with equivalent FICO scores uh, than someone who comes in from credit card or direct mail. So how would you like think about those channels then? So is it, which, is it just because of the fraud or the intent or why one channel would be different than the other when you run as a scoring model? It's behavioral. So at a firm, you know, we found out very quickly, you know, fensible goods were higher credit risk than uh, non-fensible goods. So sell someone a, a beautiful soda, a sofa or a mattress, that's less risky than DJ equipment. 
uh, or you know, electric skateboards were, were a tough one for a while. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you figure out these patterns, uh, but like you know, literally like, and there's there's brand association too in in, uh, in buy now pay later. So there are premium brands, and then there are you know, not so premium brands, and the you know for equivalent you know bureau data, you're going to get different outcomes depending on who's attracted to that brand and, and why. So in that, that's just so you can have an attribute associated with like that brand. You can have you, know, you can have a higher cutoff depending on how you're thinking about risk as well. But like source, you know, is a really interesting behavioral characteristic. And there are plenty of other ways to assess behavioral characteristics. Like you have the folks like uh, Zest who pioneered like how are you moving your mouse, how fast do you type, uh, you know, do you you know misspell words and, and things like that. I've been kind of less interested in that and, and more interested on fast and generally accurate decisioning and, and not getting that last 0.1% of approvals. Hmm. Okay. So the wall went from like, everybody has a car, credit card, house, building the credit file. That's kind of how you get better terms. Now folks are more, there's more variety. Some folks just don't have credit file at all, more debit card usage. What do you think is going to happen in the next few years? Let's say three to five years. How would the market change? Well, I, I think digital offerings are going to continue to proliferate. I, I think, uh, in general, consumer finance will continue to be a fragmented space. So the the dreams of the financial supermarket or the like credit card that solves all problems, everyone's trying to do it. Um, I don't know. Maybe there will be one or two breakout products, but there's not going to be eight kind of centralized solutions to consumer credit issues. So you're going to continue to have fragmentation, lots of custom solutions depending on you know what type of credit is needed for auto loans as more cars move online, used cars move online, different type of you know there's there's a full range of housing finance now, uh, whether it be traditional mortgages, HELOCs, but also on just you know, non-traditional ownership structures, uh, and, and so that's going to you know by that I mean type of lease to own oriented setups or or other designs uh, folks like Divi and Landis uh, are, are in that bucket. And you know on the consumer side, for large dollar even small dollar purchases, if the credit you know if the credit's available at checkout, that's going to continue to be an effective tool uh, to solve that specific problem. And I think consumers like uh, when they say, you know I finance this couch, Versus I have a thousand dollar balance on my credit card. So let's now shift gears. So now you decided that Kirill is good. Like you want to give him a loan. What do you do with the loan in the background? What do we do with the loan? Well, so the loan is onboarded into a servicing system, right? Uh, and so, you know, servicing is an incredibly uh, underrated or underfocused area of like how loans succeed, right? Uh, and so. You have a lot of, you know, so at, at NICA, we've invested in, uh, you know, businesses that actually help on the servicing side. So Peach Finance, uh, which was founded by Eddie Osisher, who is my colleague at a firm, he built our servicing system. He, he built a Nova servicing system, and now he does it as a service. And so he, he's very good at it. But, you know, having a fully flexible platform on the back end is super important. So if you want to offer a different loan type, that traditionally uh, that, you know, doesn't fit into 
the traditional models that you know that's critical as well as digital means of communication uh, so the you know, overall servicing experience uh, consumers uh, expect not only readily available information but also the ability to get answers on any questions they have uh, very efficiently and, and so through use of chatbots text communication email and really uh, you know, specialized uh, call center uh, technology. I think consumers can have a better and quicker resolution. Uh, and it's also just much more efficient for the businesses to run that today. So you were talking about servicing, but also I, I wanted to understand how, what happens in terms of capital markets, right? So you send it to a servicing company if you want to keep it on your books. But I, I guess the majority of uh, uh, lenders today and like fintechs, they actually don't keep it on the books. They try to get it as, as fast off their books as possible and just be this like origination platform and really like get the loans, underwrite them, and then sell them off. How does that process work? Yeah, so uh, yeah, this is something I've done quite a bit and, and, and quite passionate about. And, and just to kind of say it a different way, the problem is you have a lending business, you're early stage, and you're like, I don't really want to go and raise you know, money from Nika, hopefully, and just use that to, you know, uh, lend out. And, like, I need leverage on this, or I need to sell this exposure uh, so I can, you know, take the, the money I get from Nika and I put it into the operations of the business. So th- that's actually a, a, a real challenge because when you start out, you have no track record. And, you know, most lenders, if they're good lenders, will say, we really need to see a track record before we're going to, you know, you know, lend to you, never mind, just take all the risk ourselves. So there's a bit of a dance that goes on for a couple of years, frankly. So it's not an easy process. But the, the challenge is, how do you use uh, kind of near-term financing uh, to be able to demonstrate that you know what you're doing? And, and then you know, the, the, the next step is you, you go and say, okay, like I, I raise... You know, a few million bucks from friends and family to go and demonstrate that my product works. Then I'm going to take it to X lender and say, look, you know, I did this six months, no defaults, or, you know, uh, maybe, you know, that would be too tight of underwriting, but, you know, here, here's a, a data set. Here's, uh, you know, how I'm uh, actually building up the business. Here's where I think it's going. And, and you at least have something to show. So that's when you get your call it first real credit relationship. Uh, and that's often like very difficult to sell uh, still in terms of like offloading all the risk. So you, you often do need some degree of equity capital supporting, call it a, a lending facility. But then you build up a bigger book, show more track record. Then, then there are real conversations to be had in terms of scale and, and capital efficiency. But going to major banks, uh, getting you know, larger, more efficient and, and cost-effective facilities, uh, selling that risk to to counterparties, and and you know my my biggest thing here is the, the folks that will finance your loans will say bring everything here, we'll take care of it for you. Don't worry about anyone else. That's actually the worst thing you can do because you've got all your eggs in one basket, uh, and, and so you always want to have a a, a distributed capital strategy where you have multiple uh, counterparties, and obviously you can't start off with five. You start off with one, but you want to diversify your capital sources uh, to make sure that if one shuts down for whatever reason uh, beyond your control, you've got other uh, trusted partners. And, and I, I think that's the, the real 
secret to capital strategy is don't put all your eggs in one basket, diversify risk, find partners that you trust, make sure that you've got true alignment. And that's, you know, that enables you to focus more on how can you develop the best lending products for your customer base, you know, versus, you know, being focused on where's that next dollar of lending capital coming from. How does it change over time? So let's say you're just starting out and you're new on the block and who would you sell it to first? And let's say five years in and you're somebody like a firm, how would you think about yeah. getting the loans off your books? So, yeah, it's quite a different strategy. So you have in the early days, so there are a number of credit funds that are out there that will either buy risk or lend at very high advance rates against that risk. Uh, it's not cheap. Uh, it's not cheap at all. They charge very high rates uh, and, and they should because there's a lot of risk involved. You know, the issue is that you want to graduate from them uh, eventually and they know that, uh, but they also you know want you to be engaged with them for as long as possible because they're doing a lot of work up front and, and you want, you know, you're being a partner to them. Uh, and, and so they don't want you to run away and you, you want to support them as well. But from there, it, it's, you know, you go from call it credit specific funds, you know, hedge funds start playing in at once you think you can produce 50, $100 million worth of uh, exposure for someone. As, as you start getting bigger, you look at securization. Uh, securization is a process that's not for the light of heart. One, one thing that people don't realize is when you're in an early stage startup, you do the best you can. You always have data issues. Uh, you, it's really hard to reconcile to the penny. When you start like getting into sophisticated capital markets relationships, you need to tie to the penny. You need to figure out how to do that. You need to like build systems that help ensure that you're able to tie to the penny and know where every dollar, every loan is uh, is at every moment of time, right? And, and that's that's a big project uh, because nothing is built uh, in its uh, you know terminal state upfront. Uh, I, I can say that with charity, you know. But as you're approaching the securization. Uh, there are banks that will help you with that process. Uh, and securization is really just a public financing. And, and the reason why you need to spend so much time on the, the data side, client side, is because everything has to be buttoned up. So if, if you, know, you have a warehouse line from you know, good friends at Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or Goldman or whatever it is, and you're like, oh shit, there's a bug in our system, uh, they're not going to be happy but they can work through that process with you to reconcile everything and get everything on, you know, good to go. And and you move forward from that. If you find a bug in your system with an active public securization, it's a real problem. Uh, It's, it's kind of like, you know, not to go into crypto land, but if you have a smart contract, smart contracts kind of dumb in that, like there's always, you know, uh, corner scenarios that aren't thought about. And, And so, you know, if you have a smart contract that triggers, it's like, oh, this thing collapsed. That's the last thing that you want it to do. Versus if you have a, you know, a lending relationship, it's like, okay, this is a problem. Let's work through this together. Uh, as long as everyone's working good faith, you can come up with a good solution. So securization, you got to be locked in, got to have great confidence that your data is accurate, that you can continue to do that, that your underwriting is going to continue to be at the standards that are dictated by that financing. And what that that allows you to do is access a lot of uh, major uh, investors 
who are looking for that mature product and are willing to make a lot less money because it's a mature product rated by a rating agency and, and supported by you know, the major banks of the world uh, in, in terms of underwriting. I like how passionately you talk about securitization and uh, capital markets. I'm sure you have some stories. So <laughs> anything crazy that happened that comes to mind? I don't know if uh, you can go into details. Well, I, I, not, not with securitization. I'll, I'll give one story uh, and I will remove names uh, to protect the, the guilty. Uh, yeah. But, uh, you know, in a past company, we were refinancing out a, a, a facility at, at some point. And uh, in order to, we're basically refinancing out the uh, previous facility and we were pledging to a new facility and it was a lot of loans and it had to be done same day because if you don't do it same day, like you have to come up with the cash to support all these loans unlevered. So like, you know, let's just say you've got a hundred million bucks worth of loans and your advance rate is, you know, 80% then you have $20 million in, in, against those $100 million worth of loans. But if you all of a sudden intraday need the other $80 million, like you're kind of bankrupt. Uh, and, and so no one wants this scenario to happen. Of course, we, you know, with the entity we were refinancing from, everything was fine. Uh, there, there are no problems. The new lender, almost, you know, we, we kind of, you, you trigger something, it's like dominoes. You, you start a process and you can't really stop it. And, and so we started that process. The, the new lender came to us at like around noon Pacific. So that's three Eastern. And there's a wire deadline. Uh, technically, it's four Eastern, but you can, you know, it can be pushed quite a bit. It's, it's however long someone stays, at, you know, and clears your, your wire at the Fed. And, and usually they want to go home when they're supposed to go home. So anyway, they, they start, the new bank comes and says, hey, like we're missing all this documentation. In fact, like this entity isn't set up correctly. And, and so we have our lawyers scrambling you know, to fix that as, as quickly as possible. It ends up being a two-page document. We look it over for 30 seconds. We send it off. And then like we're just waiting. Finally, uh, you know, so it's, it's 1 o'clock. It's 1.30. It's 2. We're like, what's going on here? And then like... Finally, at like 2.25, they say, okay, we're good to go. And you can release your wire. And, and so we, we hit the wire. And 5.30 is like, so 2.25 Pacific is yeah, 5.25. 5.30 is the hard, hard, hard deadline where the wire is just shut off. And so we, we send the wire and we're just you know, waiting to see if it clears. Like no one can guarantee that it clears. And we're on the conference, you know, you know, there's no Zoom back then. So we're on a polycom with the bank and we're like, so guys, like, are we close? Dead silence. 2.30, 2.35, 37 they're like, just kidding, we're clear. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> the, the deal is done. We, we didn't go bankrupt that day, uh, which is nice. Uh, but it, it was way st- more, more stressed than we wanted to be. Uh, it was in the early days of the business. I, I would not do it like that today, but we got through it. As you were talking about it, I, I had like my hands started sweating. Because <laughs> 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 I can imagine like sitting in that conference room, like and the time is ticking and you just, did it clear or not? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, we we, uh, we were opening the first champagne after that one. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, your investment trove. So thank you. I, I really enjoy working with you and highly recommend to all the entrepreneurs who will be listening to this uh, that Jeremy and Nike are great partners. I guess you've been looking at this space for a little while. Why did you decide to invest in the space and why did you decide to invest in Trove specifically? I, I think a, a few reasons. Um, one, I, I think in general, so I've said a few times uh, during uh, you know, this conversation that payroll data is very important and very powerful. So I, I, I believe in that. I think from a kind of taking a step back from a, like a macro industry perspective, you have the work number who's really been the only like, you know, one of the, or one of the few institutional grade uh, solutions in the past. They charge an absolute portion for a service that's pretty darn simple especially you know, when they're getting most of their data from ADP. Uh, and and you know, that, that's, that old model has really had a, a tremendous amount of stress over the last couple of years for good reason. Uh, and every bureau wants to be in this business. Um, oh, every consumer underwriter wants this information, but it's got to be cost effective and it's got to be efficient for the potential borrower to uh, relay this information uh, in a secure and, and safe way. So th- there's been very active participation in the space. And the question is, who can actually build technology solutions that take very difficult technology problems and simplify it on the consumer side uh, and deliver the business proposition in a very cost-effective manner? Uh, and, and so with our, uh, our surveying of the space and talking to all the major folks, True was our answer. Kirill, you and team, uh, we've assembled an exceptional team. Uh, so truly uh, a product and engineering-led organization, which is uh, paramount to anything that I would want to invest in. And I, I think you understand you know, the, the game quite well that you've got traditional financial institutions that would use this data a lot more get, you know, given a, um, a different approach. And, and so you've done an exceptional job of helping them realize that. Uh, and, and there's many more to convince. So bank and non-bank lenders, um, you know, I, I think this will be become table stakes, just like pulling a bureau file will be uh, over the coming years. And it, and it doesn't have to cost you know, $40 a pull like uh, the work number has you know, in, in the past. Uh, and, and then, you know, on the fintech side, uh, offering... You know, uh, you know, solid solutions there, especially point solutions that help you know lenders assess income uh, and the complexity around income is, is is very very important for modern lending. And and so I think Truce, uh, you know, platform approach really solves uh, you know both of those kind of legacy and uh, ongoing future problems quite effectively. Yeah, you know, it was great on coming to this decision uh, and. and to be lucky enough to be part of the company. Uh, but it, it's been even more fun as we've started to work together with some uh, you know, terrific partnerships that will benefit you, hopefully, over the long run. <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm excited to partner and see where uh, this whole market ends up in the next couple of years. And Jeremy, at the end of the interview, I ask everybody what for two truths and a lie. It's been a tradition for newcomers to, who join Truth. Uh, what are your two truths and a lie? Here are my two truths and a lie. Truth number one, I've been infected by multiple parasites over the course of my life and gotten rid of them. 
Truth number two, I was on the winning little 500 uh, cycling team at Indiana University. Truth number three, I grew up in Southern Indiana on the Kentucky border, and everyone I grew up with had a Southern accent except for me. Awesome. Thanks for coming. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Seeking the Truth. You can keep up with the latest on our podcast at truvcom slash podcast or wherever you get your pods. We'll see you next time.